following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. Well, good morning. Let me ask you if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, and we'll uh, read that together, but uh, while you're turning there, I'll just say what a pleasure it's been to be with you over the last couple of days. I've been able to see some uh, good friends that uh, I only get to see uh, when I come out to this part of the country uh, or when they come out to where we are or Actually, we bump into each other, I guess, at conferences all over the place every now and then, but it's still good to be here. This actually, I think I, this is my like 12th or 14th time in Southern California in the last four years or so, and it's never rained before. <laughs> so I didn't know what was happening when I walked outside just now, but I thought, what is this wet stuff that's on me? But uh, it rains here too, apparently. So... Um, I want to encourage you um, at what a blessing it is for me to be here. So many people that I've talked to have said how much they love IBCD and how uh, this is something that you look forward to every year, this conference. And that's so encouraging. And I just want you to know um, that one of the amazing things that I can't even believe I get to do is go all over the place and see what the Lord is doing in biblical counseling everywhere. Um, and it's, I mean, I'm in Louisville a lot of the time. That's where we live. And uh, Southern Seminary is an ACBC certified training center for biblical counseling like IBCD is. And Southern Seminary has 800 students that are studying biblical counseling. And they're going to go all over the place and uh, be pastors or counseling staff members or youth group leaders who are going to be uh, expert biblical counselors. And uh, exciting things are happening in uh, biblical counseling at, at many of the major seminaries uh, across our country. Uh, exciting things are happening in biblical counseling in China and Japan and in Australia. And uh, Lauren and I were just in uh, Germany and Switzerland just the week before we got here. And they, there is a passionate group of people about biblical counseling in Europe. Um, pray for them. They are... They are, as we talked, it seems to me they're about in Europe where the American biblical counseling movement was in the 1970s. So they are really working hard. Uh, I think as Americans, we can uh, cooperate with them in some really helpful ways to help hit the fast forward button so we can at least get them into the 90s here in the next couple of years. Um, but just so many exciting things. And uh, in the midst of all of that excitement, uh, I come here and I see what's going on at IBCD. And you should be encouraged that the ministries that you have available to you here to grow up into biblical counseling are some of the best in the whole world. And so uh, I'm so thankful to be here and uh, to have uh, uh, the opportunity to get to know you and spend time with friends and pray be a blessing to you. I, I want to read Psalm 23 as we kind of close things out this morning. Six quick little verses of a very famous passage that uh, has everything to do with what we're talking about this weekend and what I need to talk about today, I think. So Psalm 23, this is what God's word says. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, when I started the other day uh, talking about the necessity of biblical counseling, I asked you to consider that to be part one of a two-part talk. And uh, what we talked about there, just to refresh your memory, is the fact that uh, counseling is required because we live in a world where there is trouble and pain. And we have a Bible that is about trouble and pain. And we talked about the issues of human sinfulness and the threats that we face in the midst of a world that is opposed to Christ. We talked about the evil one, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we talked about the fact that we're confused because our we're limited by our status as created beings and then we're also hampered in that limitation by the fact that we've fallen away from the Lord and so we're confused and we talked about this unrelenting enemy that will catch up with us sooner or later if the Lord doesn't come back and that is the enemy of death and I said that really we're the only ones who understand all five And even when other people stumble into a couple of the issues that cause us trouble, they don't understand them as fully as we can with our Bibles. But if if you're really paying attention and you're really tracking, we ended when I talked in a really frustrating place. So I think about when I was a little boy and we had a, uh, a little brown pinto. Does anybody know what that looks like with naugahyde seats? Okay. You had to like steal your resolve to sit down on a hot day because it was going to hurt. And ours were, uh, ours was old. And so the, the naugahyde was cracked and it pinched your legs when you went to get up if you had shorts on. So that was a blast. And our brown pinto had a radiator problem. And so uh, we always had to pour... Water. Are there even radiators in cars anymore? I don't know. I haven't heard from my radiator <laughs> ever, but presumably it's in there. But, uh, uh, but we kept a pitcher of water uh, in the... We wouldn't go anyplace without a pitcher of water in the car. And when the radiator would start to smoke, we'd stop and get in there and pour water in. And then we'd go along our merry way in our awesome brown pinto with the cracked naugahyde, the steaming radiator. There go the Lamberts. Um, and it didn't take a lot for me as a little boy to know that we had a radiator problem. The steam's coming up out of the thing, the car quit moving, we have a radiator problem. But I didn't know how to fix it. So it actually can be a fairly discouraging reality to be aware of a problem but not know how to fix it. 
That's true with radiators, and that's true with the human heart. If you know that there is a problem, that's great as far as it goes, but um, life's a lot more complicated than just a diagnosis of the problem. We have to have a solution. We have to know how to fix it. And if you felt frustrated by the end of that talk on whatever day it was, was it Friday? Thursday? I didn't hear what you said, but it was the other day. I don't even know what today is. But if you felt frustrated by that talk at the end, uh, great, we know about trouble, but we still have trouble. And how do we fix it? If that is a point of frustration, then I want to turn the corner today and talk about the solution to the trouble. And here... In the context of talking about Psalm 23, I would say here is what the solution is in the terms of Psalm 23. In a world full of trouble, the kind of trouble that requires counseling, in a world full of trouble, God is actively involved in caring for his people. In a world full of trouble, God, God is actively involved in caring for his people. Now that assertion is based on a fact and a promise from Psalm 23. Here's the fact. Psalm 23 verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. David does not introduce this as a matter for debate. He doesn't ask this as a question. He gives you information. And here is the fact that he provides to you. The Lord is my shepherd, is what David says. And what do shepherds do? Well, Jim told us how they smell. Right? <laughs> they smell like sheep. Why do they smell like sheep? They smell like sheep because they were doing what Jim described them doing. They care for the sheep. The work of shepherding is not pretty work. I, uh, I have some exposure to this. I spent about six months of my life living in a foster home that had a farm attached to it. And we had to care for these animals. And it's, you, just, you can't go out there in your nice clothes and expect to stay clean. You've got to go out there in clothes that you expect to be ruined. Because there's going to be poop and food that's gross. And things are going to get splashed on you. And you're not sure what those things are even. Uh, but they don't smell good. And that's what shepherds do. Shepherds show up in dirty clothes to get dirty with dirty sheep. Now, David could have said anything he wanted here. He could have said, the Lord is my basketball coach. That would have been a stretch. But uh, he could have said, the Lord is my butler. He didn't say that. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. 
And in agricultural Israel, you start thinking about God doing some really dirty work for the purpose of caring for you. God, the Lord, gets dirty to care for his child, David. The Lord is my shepherd. That's the fact. So the statement that in a world full of trouble, God is actively involved in caring for his people is based on that fact, and it's also based on a promise. The fact, the Lord is my shepherd. The promise, also verse 1, I shall not want. This again is not a question. He's not saying, um, if the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. True or false, discuss. He just says, the Lord is my shepherd, and that means, promise, I shall not want. And we start thinking about all that trouble that we talked about. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. The devil's out to get me. The world hates me. I'm confused, and then I'm going to die. (laughs) David knows that. He's going to talk about it. But he says, in that world, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. In the midst of enemies, even when the enemy is the enemy within, in the midst of my eventual death, I shall not want. Why shall you not want? Because the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord cares for me. The Lord is a shepherd protecting us from want. That's how God is actively caring for his people in a world full of trouble. He is a shepherd that gives us rest in the midst of a world that is full of pain. Look at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Isn't that a funny way to say it? He makes me lie down in green pastures. You wouldn't think that we would need to be made to lie down in green pastures, but we do. We get frantic and we think we can do all this on our own and we think we're strong enough to overcome our own sin and we think we can fix the sinners in our life and we think we can fight the devil and we think we can get smart enough to overcome our problems and we think if we're just nice enough and kind enough and persuasive enough then the world really will believe that we're not bigots when we say that marriage is between a man and a woman and we think that we can do plastic surgery and take medicine and all this stuff and maybe we'll live forever or something like that. We just get frantic in our own labor, and we need the Lord to be a shepherd and make us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. This is what the shepherd does. This is what David describes the work of the shepherd doing. There are some places where it is hard to be frantic. The beach. You guys have more access to the beach than we do, so maybe it's easier for you. But when my family's on the beach, it's hard for us to be frantic. I could not get my wife to be frantic on the beach if I tried to. 
I think if one of the children caught fire, I think she might just kind of lounge over and try to splash some water on them, you know? I mean, it just, there's just some places where it is hard to be frantic. We were... Um, I mentioned we, we just got back from Europe for a string of biblical counseling conferences over there, and Lauren joined me for part of that. And for a few days in between some of the conferences, we had some time off, and we, we were riding on trains through Switzerland. If you've never been to Switzerland, Switzerland is Psalm 23. Okay, I mean, you're just going through, and there's just these rolling meadows and these green pastures, and God just put these beautiful trees and flowers everywhere, and here's a uh, some still water sitting right there. And um, we, uh, we went to uh, Wingen, Switzerland, I believe is how they say it. If there's any Swiss people here, I'm sorry if I just butchered one of your most beautiful places. But uh, Wingen, Switzerland. And uh, W-E-N-G-E-N, I think. And if you ever get to go, go. And it is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. And we sat there, and we just went, because there's green pastures everywhere. And there's this still water sitting right here, a waterfall coming down, and a little brook that leads to the still water. And you just sit there, and you go, I can breathe here. I just need to sit here and look at this. Whether you're on the beach, or whether you're in Wingen, Switzerland, or whether you're on the grass uh, beside a pool of still water that's near where you live. Do you know why God made those things? Do you know why God made Switzerland? God made Switzerland so that you would have a reality that would make sense to you when you read Psalm 23. God created still waters and restful pastures so that when you sit there and exhale and feel relief, it would point you to the reality of Psalm 23 that you need to find your rest and a shepherd who cares for you. God is a shepherd that gives us rest in the midst of a world that assaults us with pain. What kind of rest does the Lord give us? Well, in the midst of our sin, God makes us righteous. In the midst of our sin, God makes us righteous. Look at verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. God leads you along a path of righteousness. That's one way he gives you rest, is he reaches out his hand and he takes you down this path that makes you holy. For all of us who struggle with sin, that path of righteousness is going to involve two realities. If you put your finger there and flip over to Colossians 3, Colossians 3 tells us about each of those realities. One reality is 
as we are led down the path of righteousness is the things we have to stop doing. Colossians 3 verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. One reality on the path the shepherd leads you down towards righteousness is if you would be righteous, there are things you have to stop doing. There's things you have to put to death. There's things you have to put away. And the Lord leads us down that path. Another reality on the path of righteousness that our shepherd guides us on is the things we have to start doing. So this is 3 verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, So you also must forgive. Righteousness is a path where there's things we put to death and there's things we put on. The the path of righteousness is actually a very practical path. Some of you are or you know people who feel trapped by your sin. There's this thing you struggle with. Maybe it's new. Maybe it's old. But you can't win against it. it, Maybe it's your pride or your anger or your lust or your worry or your sinful sorrow or whatever it is. And you say, I can't win. And what you need to do is believe. That the Lord is your shepherd, and you shall not want. And you need to rest in that shepherd who cares for you and says, I'll lead you in paths of righteousness. This is a guarantee, do you see? It is a guarantee. We get nervous about guarantees. This is a guarantee. This is a statement of what the Lord will do. He will take you by the hand and he will lead you in paths of righteousness. And he will do it because you are an awesome person. (laughs) Didn't get very far with that. Okay. Oh, well. No, not because you're so awesome. It says so. He will do it for his name's sake. You think you're not going to be holy? God says, I'll make you holy and I'm going to do it for my name's sake. There is no higher name that the Lord could swear by than his own name. And he's communicating to you, you will not be enslaved by your sin. And the counselees that you know will not be enslaved by their sin. This is a guarantee of righteousness because the Lord is going to honor his own holy name. He'll give us rest in the midst of our sin For his name's sake. In the midst of our sin, God gives us righteousness. In the midst of powerful enemies, God gives us rest. 
Look at verse 5. In the midst of powerful enemies, the Lord vindicates us. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is a banquet celebration right in front of the people who have scorned you. You anoint my head with oil. In the ancient world, oil had often a twofold function. It served as a purpose to honor someone. So you anoint the head of a future king or someone who is a king or something like that to show the honor that God has given to this person and the office they're going to occupy. That's one function of oil in the ancient world. Another function of oil in the ancient world is to give some kind of physical comfort. So in a world without neosporin or Bactine, oh, for the good old days. Remember Bactine? Ugh. Uh, uh, in a world without those things, they would rub oil on wounds to soothe them and to help the healing process. Oil could have an honorific function or a comforting function, and I think there's no reason for us to choose between the two here. In the midst of powerful enemies, the Lord vindicates us in front of them. In the midst of powerful enemies, the Lord honors us in front of them. In the midst of powerful enemies, the Lord comforts us in front of them. And then it also says, my cup overflows. In the midst of powerful enemies, the Lord provides for us. In the midst of powerful enemies, the Lord vindicates and honors and comforts and provides for us. And this has everything to do with enemies that we spoke about on whatever day it was. Others sin against us. And when the Lord is our shepherd, he vindicates and honors and comforts and provides for us. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, it says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. These, the Bible authors do this. They mess with your brain. So when you're thinking about people who revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, we're not tempted to say, blessed are you. That's not, that's not the way we think. If we were writing the Bible, we would not say, when I am reviled and persecuted and being beaten up, I am blessed. But Jesus says it. Why? Because, verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When people sin against you, God will honor you. Maybe not today, and maybe not tomorrow. Maybe today and maybe tomorrow. But if not, one day. When the world assails us, when the world thinks we're hate mongers, when they take away our tax-exempt status, when they put us in jail, when they fine us and tax us like they're doing to the butchers and the bakers and the candlestick makers all over the country, the Lord vindicates us and honors us and comforts us and provides for us. And John 
chapter 16, and verse 33. God bless you. It says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. When the devil torments us, the Lord vindicates and honors and comforts and provides for us. We read the other day, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Statement of the problem. Solution, verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a passage that gives us great hope in the midst of a really wicked and powerful enemy like the devil. Way worse than the Supreme Court. I mentioned um, when, when that, that trial that I went through, which some assigned to, uh, to the work of the devil, and may have been, I, I just don't know. But, but everybody that I trust said, we think something's going on here. It was that passage I mentioned that I seriously considered leaving the ministry. I seriously, because I'm like, I don't want this kind of stuff going on. And I'll go sell insurance and be a happy camper, go to church on Sunday and serve that way. And uh, the reason I didn't is because of First Peter 5, 8 to 10. That um, you, don't, uh, you don't defeat the devil by running away from him. You defeat the devil by trusting in Jesus, standing firm, and he runs away from you. In the midst of powerful enemies, like people sinning against us, and a world that hates us, and a devil that is bound and determined to defeat us, the Lord vindicates and honors and comforts and provides. In... The midst of confusion, the Lord promises good things. In the midst of confusion, the Lord promises good things. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The reason we get stressed out when we're confused, the reason we need counseling when we're confused, one reason is because we're afraid everything won't be okay. So you talk to a young woman who's panicking about which guy she should marry, or a guy who's panicking about which job he should take, or whatever it is. The reason for overmuch concern is, what if everything's not okay? What if, what if I do the wrong thing? What if I marry somebody who's unkind to me? Well, you will, by the way. It's going to happen sooner or later. What, what if I do this and, I, and, and it's not okay? 
And the shepherd reminds us that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Could you imagine a sweeter promise? It's a promise. It's again a promise. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Here's one thing that can help you understand that it's sweeter. Is goodness and mercy is not a category of things. Good things and merciful things will happen to me all the days of my life. That's not what goodness and mercy is in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 has been talking about the Lord, the shepherd, he, 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 his namesake, he, 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 he prepares, he does this. Goodness and mercy is just a fresh way to talk about the Lord. Where David hasn't changed the subject on us, where he's been resting in the Lord for five verses, and now in verse six, he rests in good things and merciful things. He's just talking about the shepherd in a new and a fresh way. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life means God will be with you all of the days of your life, even when those days aren't happy. Even when they aren't fun, God, your shepherd, will be with you. In the midst of confusion, the Lord promises good things. We don't have to worry. The pressure's off. It doesn't mean we don't take our decisions seriously. It doesn't mean we don't pray and seek wisdom about the right thing to do. But it means we're not going to get in a situation where there's not goodness and mercy. Because we're not going to get in a situation where the Lord is not our shepherd and where we are in want. In a world plagued with death, we have hope. In a world plagued with death, we have hope. Verse 4 and verse 6. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Last part of verse 6. It says, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The, uh, the death thing is the thing that everybody has to own up to. In fact, there are whole schools of psychology where they diagnose the problems of people in a complete a fear of death and a refusal to recognize the ultimate reality of death. One of the most best-selling um, books uh, in the history of modern psychology is a popular book several, written a couple decades ago called Love's Executioner. And the uh, philosophy of this secular psychologist as he writes is you've got to get used to it. His understanding of every person's problem is they have not accepted death. And what he says is you just have to accept it. You have to accept you're going to get old, you're going to get ugly, and you're going to die. And that is almost a direct quote. And all problems stem from you haven't realized that you're headed that way and you've got to give it up. Now, here's the thing. There's part of that that's true. 
we do have to accept this. Somebody said, uh, sooner or later, we're all going to wind up looking like Winston Churchill. <laughs> you know, so uh, that's probably true, I guess. I don't know. But uh, there, there is something to the accepting of this. It doesn't do any good not to accept it. But from a biblical perspective, we can do way more than accept it. In the acceptance of it, we can have hope. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am not afraid. This life is the valley of the shadow of death in the sense that we're all careening towards this eventual end. But even though I walk in that valley, I'm not afraid. I don't fear evil because you are with me. And one day, we're all going to arrive at that point. Again, if the Lord holds off. And uh, as I mentioned in that breakout session that I taught, it will be quick or it will be slow. And most of the time, we don't get a vote in that. Both of them are going to be hard. Both of them are likely to have some pain attached to them, some struggle attached to them. If not for us, then for others who experience it. But the promise of Psalm 23 for the Lord who is our shepherd and protects us from want is when we close our eyes in death, we open them in eternity. And there is the shepherd. Nobody has that. Nobody has that except us. It is the most precious reality in the entire cosmos. The Lord will be with you in the valley. And when you open your eyes on the other side, you'll see him. And he'll be with you forever. It's actually interesting. We, we live in a culture that is so medicalized. Everything's so geared towards stretching out the eventual day of death. When you talk about biblical counseling, everybody wants to be sure. Now, you're, you're, not, uh, you're not telling people to get off their pills, are you? Listen, I, the, I have been more viciously attacked over this issue than just about anything else I can think of. I've been called hateful and dangerous because I am perceived as when I'm saying, hey, use the Bible to help people. Point people to Jesus. People say this is dangerous and deadly stuff. You're going to get people off their pills. Just for the record, I don't want anybody to get off their pills. All right? Uh, I don't want anybody uh, to not be on medication that a doctor said they should be on. If, if you are under doctor's orders, you need to listen to your doctor. I'm not a physician. And uh, if you feel guilty about receiving a medical evaluation and having that, the result of that evaluation, being a doctor, prescribe you some medication, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. If you have questions, you should talk to somebody with wisdom, but you shouldn't feel guilty about it. You should ask about it. I'm not trying to get anybody off their pills. I do want to say that every single medical intervention fails. 
I hope your pills work. You're going to die. I hope your surgery works, but you will die. I want you to take chemotherapy if you have cancer. And I want it to work. And I want your cancer to go into remission. But you will die. Every human physician has a 100% rate of failure eventually. (laughs) I just work here. Why are we so worked up about medical interventions? Go get them. Of course, the Bible teaches them we're body and soul, but we're going to die. You can't outrun the curse. We've got to have more than that. I don't want anybody to flee medical intervention, but I don't want us to say that medical intervention is enough. It is unchristian to say, don't take care of your body. It's also unchristian to say, taking care of your body is the most important thing. We've got to get... First things first. We have hope that when death happens, and it's going to happen, the shepherd will be there. And we're the only people who get to say that. Nobody else gets to say that. And the hope of all of this, that there's help when you sin, because the shepherd gives righteousness. There's help when enemies attack you because the Lord vindicates and honors and comforts and provides. The hope in the midst of confusion and the hope in the midst of death is all founded on one crucial reality in Psalm 23. And if you've been paying close attention, you've caught it. With everyone... The Lord is there. He's with you. When you need righteousness, the Lord takes you by the hand and leads you personally down the path. When you're assailed by enemies, it is the Lord who vindicates. It is the Lord who honors. It's the Lord who comforts. It's the Lord who provides. When you're confused... The Lord shows up and is the presence of goodness and mercy in your life. And when you face your eventual death, the only hope you've got is that the Lord would be there with you in it and on the other side of it. The Lord is there. It's it's actually interesting how personal the passage is. In fact, I've been saying the Lord cares for his people. That's actually not the best way to interpret Psalm 23. The Lord's care for his people in Psalm 23 is never general, not once. It's always personal. There are 12 personal pronouns in the psalm. It's an average of two each verse. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He does that all through the day. It's not the Lord is a shepherd to his people and he will take care of them. That's not what he says. He says the Lord's my shepherd. He's going to take care of me. There's a very important point there. There's no comfort in counseling from a shepherd who's present. There's only comfort in counseling 
if he's your shepherd. There's only comfort in counseling if he's interested in taking care of you. It's also worth noting, just while we're on this uh, issue of pronouns and the lessons from the pronouns in Psalm 23, there's no comfort that your shepherd is there if you don't know how to get to him. So how do you get to him? Well, I think Psalm 23 tells us in in an interesting way. I think it tells us with pronouns. David talks about God with he, he, he all through the psalm. Verses 1, 2, 3, and 6. The exception is verses 4 and 5. And in verses 4 and 5, he stops talking about he, the Lord, he, the shepherd, and he starts talking about you, the Lord, you, the shepherd. He moves from talking about God to talking to God in verses 4 and 5. Why? Why is verses 4 and 5 different than 1, 2, 3, and 6? I think it's because in verses 4 and 5 there's trouble. And trouble, I direct myself to God more personally. In verses 4 and 5 there is the valley of the shadow of death. In verse 5 there are enemies that are out to get me. And when that trouble happens, it's not enough to know about God. It's not enough to know that he is a shepherd who will help you. But you have to have access to him. You have to appeal to him. And the way you do it is by direct address. Just start talking. And he'll be there. Isn't that amazing? If you just start talking to your shepherd, he will be there. Think about how amazing this is. The most powerful man in the world is Barack Obama. He can uh, can call out airstrikes on just about anybody he wanted to. He's presiding over the world's largest economy and the world's most powerful army. And if I need his help, I have no access to him. He don't want to talk to me. He don't want to talk to you, probably. He's too busy. He's got bigger fish to fry than to talk to me and to talk to you. He's got to talk to other important people. But Barack Obama has a boss who's more powerful than Barack Obama. And it is the God of heaven and earth who says, I am your shepherd, and if you need me, ask. If you need me, call my name, and I will be there. That just would be harder to come up with something more beautiful than that reality. And yet it makes us ask a question. I mean, if you're just tracking with all this, you have to ask... David is talking about himself. David says, the Lord's my shepherd. David says, David will not be in want. David says that when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And how do I know that that's for me? How do I know 
that the hope that was David's when he was in trouble is the hope that'll be mine when I'm in trouble. How do I know that the God who answered David when he called will be the God who answers me when I call? How do we know that applies to me? Well, this gets to what I was asked to speak about today, which is the necessity of the gospel in counseling. What is the gospel? Everybody talks about the gospel today. It's everywhere. It's the cool thing to be talking about, Uh, which only means we're in trouble uh, because the next stop after cool is irrelevant. And, and, you know, I teach at a seminary in a Bible school, and you hear people talking about the gospel this and the gospel that and all kinds of things. And sometimes just for fun, I'll say, why don't you tell me what the gospel is? And a surprising number of people cannot answer that question. What is the gospel? I'll just tell you what I think it is real quickly, and I won't try to argue for this too, uh, too persuasively. But I think the gospel, when you read how that term is used in the New Testament, I think it is the proclamation of all that Jesus did and the good things that that means for us. The gospel is the proclamation of the work of Jesus Christ and all that that means, all the good things that that includes for us. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about a proclamation We're talking about a proclamation of who Jesus is and what he did, and we're talking about the good results of that in our life. And we could talk about those good results from now until the end of time, and I suspect that's just exactly what we'll be doing. But one benefit that... uh, We need to think about in the context of Psalm 23, remember all of these ways that the shepherd protects us from want, whether it's our sin or the enemies we face or death or confusion, whatever it is, all of those means of comfort are tied to the fact that the shepherd is there. In the immediate context, he's there for David. We need to try to figure out if he's going to be there for us. And when you think about that, there's this fascinating promise in Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And that promise is true. God can make that promise because of what God the Son did in Matthew 27. Verses 45 to 46. 46, um, uh, yeah, 45 to 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And people ask questions about that passage and they wonder, what was Jesus doing? 
It seems like, I thought Jesus was the son of God. I thought he was involved in this whole plan. And now in the throes of death, he seems to be calling out in desperation, God, what are you doing? Doesn't, doesn't Jesus know what he's doing? And the question seems to indicate, well, no, no, he doesn't. So some people have gotten some leverage out of that over the years, but it misses the whole point. Jesus is quoting a psalm. He's quoting Psalm 22, the psalm right before the one we've been looking at. Jesus is a teacher of scripture. At all of the significant moments in his life, he points his people back to scripture and shows how ultimately he is the fulfillment of that scripture. And in the context of Psalm 22, Psalm 22, as you may recall, is a psalm that starts out with a righteous person who's been forsaken by God, but who ultimately is vindicated by God. Jesus, in asking this question, is pointing us to the truth of Psalm 22, that he is this fulfillment of Psalm 22. And Jesus asks the question not because he's confused, but because the scripture that he's quoting is written in the form of a question. And the very obvious point that Jesus is making is that he has been forsaken. Jesus has been abandoned by the Lord. As one of our children's Bibles says, for the first time and the last... God turned away from his boy. God didn't hear. And God did that. He abandoned his son so he could make the promise of Hebrews 13.5 to you. Jesus was forsaken so you never would be. That's the gospel. The gospel applies all of the promises, all of the hope, all of the rest, and all of the peace of Psalm 23 to you. That's what Jesus does. That's the proclamation of who he is and what he did for you. Jesus Christ... Because he was forsaken, applies every single word of Psalm 23 to your little life. And so you can have hope when you're struggling with sin. You can have hope when enemies assail you. You can have hope when you're confused. You can have hope when you know you're going to die. Because Jesus is the good shepherd who was forsaken so you would never be and the Lord could be your shepherd protecting you from one and always, always be there. That's the hope for us. That's the hope for the people that we help. We need biblical counseling. First, I was asked the necessity of biblical counseling. We need biblical counseling because The Bible understands, and it's the Bible exclusively that understands the problems that we have. But the Bible also is the only place that understands the solution to those problems. And the solution to those problems ultimately is found in Jesus Christ. 
And if you've been paying attention for the last few minutes, you know that's not a cliche. It's always fascinating. The big debate in the biblical counseling movement is, is the Bible sufficient for counseling? This has been the fight for 40 years, 50 years. Is the Bible really sufficient? And secular psychologists and integrationists and Christian psychologists and all the rest, they say, essentially, these poor biblical counselors. Don't they know the Bible's not about everything? Don't they know that the Bible's a religious book about how to get saved and about how to pray and stuff like that? Don't they know there's truth all over the world? And all truth is God's truth and we need to embrace it. Don't they know that? Don't they know that the Bible's not sufficient for counseling? And that argument breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Because you know what the real issue is? The real issue ought to be who thinks psychology is sufficient for counseling? Since when did we decide that psychology is sufficient for counseling? They don't understand what's wrong with people. You know what the president of the National Institutes for Mental Health said on PBS a couple of years ago? He said, we can't help people. He said that. Not, not a member of ACBC. President of the National Institutes of Mental Health. He said, we can't help people. We can give them drugs and tweak their symptoms and make them feel better for a little while. But what people actually need is meaningful relationships and to know that their lives are valuable. I mean, if he kept talking, he'd have had to confess Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. Because <laughs> there's no place to go after that, you know? Who decided that psychology is sufficient for counseling? When they don't understand what the problems are, and even more than that, they don't have Jesus. We have Jesus Christ. What more could we want? What more is there? Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.